HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm one of HRN's interns, Nina Medvinskaya, with a preview of the next episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. This week's topic, the marriage of food and danger. Sometimes, danger lurks in the food that we eat. So instead of saying what is poisonous, I'd rather say what's not, because it's literally just the flesh and the fins. Food poisoning doesn't just threaten our bodies but it endangers our environment as well. The emissions of JBS, combined with the other top five meat companies, exceed the annual emissions of Exxon, Shell, or BP. For more, tune into this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. Hello, you are listening to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network. This is a show about food, politics, and identity, and I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and I'm in studio in the back of Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Um, I am here with my guests today, Doa Al-Qadi and Frida Nokali, who are the co-owners of Spice Tree Organics. It is an ethically sourced and small batch organic spice company that they founded together. So welcome to the show, Doa and Frida. Thank you. Thank you. How are you doing today? You came all the way from Queens. It wasn't bad. Yeah. It was good. Just <laughs> fighting off some colds. <laughs> um, well, it's wonderful to have you here. And I know you are sisters-in-law. Is that is that correct? Yes. Yep. Great. I let her marry my brother. You let her. <laughs> Someone had to do it, right? Uh, exactly. She was very persistent. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good sign. Um, so tell us a little bit about what Spice Tree is and what's kind of like the ethos behind it. So Spice Tree Organics um, is a company we founded in 2015, kind of out of our shared love of um, cooking global cuisine and out of our um, passion for real food and organic eating. And we kind of went through a transformation in the way we cooked for our families um, after learning, um, you know, 
about how toxic conventional spices are. We had already been sourcing and, you know, buying produce from like a CSA for, you know, three, four years. And we had a cow share from like a, you know, organic farm upstate. And um, a cow share? Yeah. So basically, like you purchase a cow and it's, it's, uh, you know, grass fed. Um, sustainably raised cow and you the farm butchers it and you divide the meat amongst you know several families that way you kind of have your meat for the year but it's like organic and it's halal and it's um you know all the things that we were looking for in our meat but we couldn't find like at the supermarket oh that's amazing i mean obviously people know about that when it comes to vegetables but i've never heard of a cow share before yeah yeah um and we realized um, just through researching and being into, um, you know, reading about organic eating and, and, and real food, just how um, when it comes to spices, it's even more important to source um, them organically because spices go through a process of radiation, which kills off up to 90% of the medicinal benefits, but also um, leaves like really awful toxic byproducts in the spices which combine with the pesticides and you're basically you know putting poison on your organic produce and your organic meats and um, we didn't want that for our families and we stopped buying conventional spices and we would like split out organic spices that we bought from Amazon because we lived uh, close to each other and we'd just order and share things Um, and then I feel like at that time, this was around like 2014 or so, um, you know, Schmorgesberg had just started and, and or not just started, but it, it was pretty new. And I was seeing so many people out there doing what they love and presenting it, you know, to New Yorkers. And um, it was being, you know, lauded and accepted. And, and, and I felt like there was a space for like an organic spice company where we could share our passion as well with people and that it would do really well. Hmm. I have to say that when it comes to spices, I think that I I hadn't really thought so much about um, the pesticide issue. I think the way that um, small batch, more kind of new artisanal spice companies are presenting themselves or presenting the problems is that there's sourcing issues and that the farmers who are the ones actually cultivating the spices aren't um, being treated fairly. And that's been my concern more. And I think that the other issues aren't, they're not as discussed as often. I mean, we think about organic, you know, all the time when we think about going to the grocery store and buying our produce and even our meat, like you said, but I think the issues with spices in that way kind of falls to the, the wayside. So what sort of um, made that, like, what turned you on to that issue? Uh, Go ahead. um, We just found articles, like we had run into articles about it, and we were shocked. It's it's super depressing when you read about our food chain and how it's filled with so much toxic material and cancer-causing materials. And, you know, we redid all our cleaners, and like we said, the CSA and the meat, and thought we were doing right by our families and then we read about the spices and our hearts dropped so um, we transitioned and then we couldn't like source a lot of the Middle Eastern blends that we liked using and um, a lot of the like Asian things that we like to do so we had to start creating our own like we'd always been blending but now it became organic spice blends 
Um, and part of Spice Tree Organics is to educate people about this. Like we have an info card with questions and answers. Um, I've done a couple of presentations, like I just did one um, to the Society of like Hospitality and Food Management to talk to them about like the benefits of spices and the importance of organic spices. So um, part of what we're trying to do is educate people um, about like the toxins lurking in the spices in their spice cabinets. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a big thing to go from wanting to do better in terms of your purchasing to taking the leap to actually starting your own company. So I do want to talk about what that decision or how you were able to come to that decision together. But I'd also just love to hear a little bit more about each of you individually and what your lives were like and what were you doing and how you were raised, you know, well before you got to the point where you were founding a company together. Joa, you want to you want to start? Yeah, so um, I'm originally from Egypt. I was born there. Um, I came here when I was two or three. Um, and my family came here under my dad's work visa. He worked for the Egyptian government um, in like the diplomatic sector. So it was supposed to be like a temporary stay. And we were kind of always raised with this notion that we're going back to Egypt. Mm. You know, we're not here permanently. Like kind of craft your life with that in mind, you know, um, and we didn't end up going back. Um, and I, you know, went to public school. Um, I went to college here. I majored in um, political science and um, media studies and then did a master's in urban reporting um, after that. Um, I freelanced for a little bit, but this was kind of at the time that everything was transitioning to online and it was kind of like a new world for journalism and um, the future of like newspapers was like really in question. Um, and also at that time, um, you know, I didn't, I found like I didn't love the profession so much. Um, so I didn't continue with it. Um, and I uh, kind of put my energies into, you know, translating in Arabic, which was like another passion of mine at the time. Um, and then, you know, I had kids um, soon after that and uh, stayed home to raise them and be with them. And once you have kids, you're, they really shape your world and your life and your priorities shift. And that's kind of, once we had kids was when our we thought crit more critically about our food and what we're eating, what we're feeding them, and what we're doing with, you know, their bodies and our bodies. Um, so Spice Tree Organics kind of um, came about, after, you know, through that lineup of, like, raising a family, trying to do the best for your family and, and make sure that you're doing right by them first and then the community, you know, um, after that. Yeah. I mean, can I just go back to one thing that you said being raised in the United States with sort of the frame of mind that you're going to be leaving at any time to go back to Egypt. Yeah. That seems like such a, a tricky thing to kind of navigate growing up. And I mean, when did, when did you, when did it occur to your family that you weren't going back and like, how did you sort of in, recalibrate? Cause I imagine you were probably resisting um, just psychologically laying down permanent roots where you were. I mean, I, I wasn't just because I don't feel I ever fit in um, with Egyptians, you know. Um, I've always 
kind of felt more American than Egyptian, but you grow up because you were so young when you yeah I was so yeah. young and and you know my parents didn't raise us um, with it, we were we were raised more culturally than like religiously so you know my parents never like forced me to do anything religiously I wasn't like made to wear you know the hijab or to you know do anything it, like studying was like the big uh, you know my parents just wanted us to like get good grades get good grades you know that was their focus when we were little. Um, but you know, when it came to like choosing a math, like a, a profession or things, like I really wanted to do psychology and my mom would be like, no, but nobody in Egypt goes to see a psychologist, you know, find something else. And, um, in that way they would, you know, keep reminding me that like in the end you're going to end up moving there. Um, so I feel like, um, I kind of lived in that binary world, a lot of, um, you know, dual, you know citizen people live in or by uh, racial people live in where you're not really you know fully here you're not really fully there um, and that's kind of shaped a lot of um, you know me having to figure out who I am and what it is like I stand for and you know um, what my core values are because you know they are very similar both Egyptian and American values are similar in a way but there are you know some that are very different. Right. But you do keep your face covered. So is that a choice to become more religious later in life or since that wasn't part of your upbringing? Yeah, it definitely wasn't. And I would say in Egyptian society, it's not encouraged. It's not something that is even um, you see it. But I feel like the majority of Egyptians look down on it. Hmm. They don't see it as something, um, you know, that they respect. They hmm. see it as something that is... Um, you know, backwards or something that, you know, a lot of that Western, um, you know, framework of having to, like, force it off of the woman and not giving her her choice has um, seeped into their thinking as well. So, um, you know, as, you know, in college, I kind of um, began to explore my faith more. Um, I took, like, I was intending to major in women's studies. Um, so I took some women's studies courses and um, in like women's studies 101, I remember um, our professor, she was like very intersectional in her approach. And this was like right after 9-11 um, when like the war in Afghanistan was like gearing up and all the media promotion and women's liberation was like a big, um, it was like a big factor in why, you know, the war was being sold. And people were buying that, and we read something about um, someone had, like, gone to Afghanistan and actually, like, talked to the women to get their opinion, which was kind of, like, even for me, like, I'm Muslim, but I never thought, like, oh, wait a minute, we should question, you know, do these women want this, or what do they think about mm -hmm. it? I just kind of had also bought into that Western, you know, viewpoint of, like, you know, the veil is oppressive and the face covering is even more oppressive, and of course it should be, like, you know ripped up and torn off. Um, so it was kind of revolutionary to me and I really started to reevaluate myself and through reading the work of like women of color, women of color feminists and seeing that like it's not just white feminism, you can kind of like exist and have your culture and still be pro-choice and you know like in terms of how a woman wants to dress, it's her choice, there isn't one standard or how a woman wants to express herself. Um, so I started feeling more comfortable exploring my faith and realizing all these cultural notions that I had about my faith 
weren't found in the text and I started becoming more observant. Um, and then for me, I made the decision to veil my face when I was, I mean, I'd wanted to for a long time, but I started when I was 24. Um, and I would say I felt like it was, um, like when I think about the values that are encouraged um, in our faith and the values that I want to, um, cre you know, create in myself, like values of, you know, um, not being like materialistic or not being show off or not being or you know being modest like these are things that I um, want to cultivate in myself and this helps me do that you hmm. know it, does it feel like a feminist act to you because it's your choice yeah absolutely I mean there was nobody in my family not my husband not my parents they were not like yeah do it they were all yeah. hesitant they were all even trying to dissuade me from doing it but it mm. was something I felt really strongly about um you know I'd known a lot of women who wore it and it didn't limit them and they were still achieving amazing things and they were still really like you know strong and really like powerful and just people that I felt like you know it's not about um it's not about oppression. It's not about wanting to section yourself off from society. It's about, you know, wanting to present certain yourself in a certain way to the world and engage with the world in a way where they can't objectify you. You're not buying into that, you know, consumerism and materialism and, you know, um, selfie culture. It's just like those things appeal to me about it. Mm -hmm. So I definitely feel in some way like, um, you know, it was a feminist choice. It sounds empowering by the way that you describe it. Like for me, I, f I feel it is like I, you know, I, I feel very comfortable in this way. Mm -hmm. um, but I recognize that people kind of need to hear that you might feel that it's empowering for them to, you know, um, understand that um, there's other ways to see it. Just like I'd never thought about the women in Afghanistan that they might want to wear the burqa. It was just like you know, that was eye-opening for me. Like, I didn't realize that I'd, you know, internalized this, like, you know, very, um, this very, like, limiting Western, you know, view of this. So I would hope that when people see me now, they, they you know, give me that same courtesy of, like, you know, asking me about it or giving me the agency to express my own, like, opinion about it. Yeah, I think that's right, because I've actually never been able to sit down with anyone and have a conversation about that choice. So I appreciate you giving me that Yeah, and I appreciate the question, yeah. Yeah, I mean, do you feel like it's ever impacted you in your role as an entrepreneur and the way that you present yourself with your business when you're with Frida? Um, for the most part, I would say people were very accepting of us. And um, only lately in the past few months have I had like a couple of negative um, interactions but um, for you know like the vast majority or for you know the absolute most part you know New York City is a great place to like be out there and do something like this you know no matter how you choose to dress and that's been my experience yeah I'm glad to hear that yeah thankfully yeah hey hi <laughs> Um, so, similar to Da'at, my parents immigrated here from Egypt in the 70s. Um, I was raised in Queens, and um, we used to go back to Egypt a lot in the summer, so, you know, I was pretty familiar with, like, my Egyptian roots and loved them. Um, not so much when I was younger, but as I got older, I learned to appreciate them. And um, I went to college for civil engineering, 
and um, went on to like work at an IT and business consulting firm for like the first eight years, I guess, post-graduation. And then I ended up quitting after my second child so that I could stay home and um, be with my kids. And I currently have four now, so it's a handful, but we're doing it. <laughs> yeah. So going back to the earlier conversation about how you went from just being like conscientious shoppers and eaters and mothers, how did you then make that leap to decide to start a business together? Um, a lot of people, like we were into hosting and having people over and cooking and um, helping people out um, with like different recipes and blends and stuff. And then um, we just kind of wanted to like educate people about it. And I had an idea, like I wanted to go sell my spice blends at a school event. They were having like a plant sale and I was telling Dot, yeah, I'm going to make a couple of my blends and sell them. And she's like, oh, that's interesting. I was thinking of starting something up on Etsy and selling some of my Arab blends. And it's kind of like, a, okay, let's do this together then. Um, she was pregnant with my niece at the time, so it delayed us a little, but... Um, they were having a halal food festival out in New Jersey uh, during the summer and like three weeks right before it, I'm like, dude, this is like the perfect opportunity for to, to launch because a lot of our blends were for street cart favorites or for Middle Eastern blends or um, like Indian blends. So we just jumped on it and it was a lot of like up till 2 a.m., 3 a.m., like knocking out stuff, designing things with friends and picking a name and all the legal stuff, but we cranked it out and we were able to launch at that Halal Food Festival three and a half years ago. What's, I mean, I don't, I've never started a business, so I wouldn't even know where to start. How did you even, how did, where did you turn first? Like what were the first initial steps of once you were like, okay, we're going to do it. Like then what happens? Well, we sat there and, you know, we talked about what our strengths were, like, you know, which cuisine are you good at? Which cuisine am I good at? Uh, we kind of laid out some fun blends that we wanted to do. It was a lot of recipe testing because we didn't have necessarily all the blends um, in our you know, little recipe boxes or had perfected over the years. So it was a lot of recipe testing. Uh, we did a lot of you know, throwing around names until we finalized our name. Uh, one of my dear friends helped me a lot with all the designing. Like I was sitting on her bed in her bedroom you know, designing out like the logo and picking out geometric prints for all the labels because uh, we tried to keep everything true to its origin. Uh, we don't like we wanted to take everything back to its origin and the country of origin and um, kind of give people the uh, like proper prints that go with each origin to give you like the full effect. Um, so it was that and she took care of a lot of the legal work and and we just put it all together. Yeah. How much of it feels personal, um, just in terms of the way you were raised or the kind of food that your family grew up eating or not necessarily, I mean, you're both Egyptian, so I imagine a lot of the spices derive um, from ones you were familiar with in Egyptian cuisine, but how much of it felt like, you know, this is food that I'm very familiar with and want to be able to express it through, through the blends that you're creating? A lot of it does, um, and if it's not, it's just, like, we both have a love of food, and we both have a love of um, kind of educating people and keeping true to the source and taking things back to the source. 
So we would never put something out that we didn't like 110% believe in. Like most recently, we just released a winter warmth set that has an Ethiopian Berberi. And like we were literally meeting, um, we have from some friends um, up in the Bronx at Bunna Cafe, and the husband is Ethiopian. And we were meeting with him like at 10 p.m. on the street and I have a little Ziploc of the Berberi I blended and I'm like, dude, try it out. And he's giving me some of his mother's Berberi that's straight from Ethiopia. And he's like, okay, well you try this out. Like, like we always take things back to the roots. We're not trying to dish up things that aren't real just because we appreciate cultures and we appreciate cuisines and we appreciate people and, and what they put out. So like we always put our best foot forward and give like 110% effort. So like my husband is part Indonesian, so that helped familiarize me with Indonesian and Malaysian cuisine and some Asian cuisine. You know, I grew up in Queens, so a lot of my friends were always um, of Puerto Rican or Dominican descent, and I was eating at their houses, and I would sit with their moms and ask them, so how'd you make this arroz con gandules, and what did you do to make the platanos, and... Um, so I was familiar with like Spanish cuisine as well. And every accent you've used has been perfect. Oh, by the thank way. you. It's very <laughs> impressive. <laughs> thank you. And um, I had a lot of familiarity with the like Arab cuisine and um, Saudi Arabian and Lebanese. Um, so, you know, we both had a, a strong foothold in a couple of different cuisines. And and what we don't, we just educate ourselves like we hit the Internet, we find people of those origins like we had uh, released a spices with heart um, set last year to kind of raise money um, for a couple of causes that were like breaking our hearts like the Rohingyan um, dilemma and um, everything that happened to the Puerto Ricans post the hurricane and um, the starvation that's happening in Yemen so we put our heads together we're like let's release this gift set um, with blends from each country because food unifies people. Maybe if somebody tastes a Yemeni blend and enjoys it, they'll think about the Yemeni um, issue and give some money. Mm. And we decided to donate half the proceeds uh, back to organizations providing relief in those countries. But to figure out a Rohingyan blend uh, that was true was so difficult because mm -hmm. there aren't that many Rohingyan people out there um, and we kept calling out and asking friends. And we had a lot of Bangladeshi friends, but that's not quite Rohingyan until we found somebody that had a, a Rohingyan aunt. And we reached out and um, she sent us like a traditional Rohingyan masala blend. And um, we played around with it and felt good about releasing something that was like true to its roots from like an actual real person. Mm, that's so inspiring and beautiful to listen to. Um, we're going to take a quick break and listen to a commercial, and then we'll be back with a few more questions from the founders of Spice Tree Organics. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, 
Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and their rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Next year, Heritage Radio Network is turning 10. For the last decade, we've been committed to bringing listeners around the world the very best in food radio for free. Our small staff and incredible network of hosts work hard so that listeners can tune in each week to hear the important conversations in food policy, stay on the cutting edge of cocktail culture, and hear the latest updates in food tech. But there is no HRN without the support of listeners like you. Become a member of Heritage Radio Network today and help HRN get a strong start to our second decade. Choose from exclusive member gifts and stay in the loop on discounts to upcoming events. There's no better time to show your support. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and wish HRN a happy birthday. Hey, you're listening to Food Without Borders on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and I've been chatting with Doa Alkadi and Frida Nokali, who are sisters-in-law, laws, law, and the co-founders, <laughs> really have never said that before, uh, of Spice Tree Organics, which is an ethically sourced small batch organic spice company. Um, so you were just kind of explaining the, the ethos of your company a little bit. Once you got launched off the ground and started running, what were some of the biggest kind of obstacles you had to overcome in the initial early, early on stages? Um, I would say initially we didn't realize um, all of the laws that exist and all of the licensing and things that um, we needed to do. And, you know, we were blending in my house and thankfully pretty early on we um, realized that, you know, Department of Ag and Markets, you know, permits that and we got the right permits and stuff. But um, once, uh, you know, we were really well supported by our friends um, in the beginning. And once we saw that, um, you know, we needed to output a pretty good amount, we started looking into commercial kitchens and, you know, um, from there you learn about insurance and you learn about, you know, um, more licenses that you need and, and, uh, and food, food protections. Permits. Yeah. Handlers and classes permits. you have to take. Yeah. So it was a lot of like that, you know, initially we just thought like, oh, well start a website and just, yeah. you know, sell at some markets and it'll be fun. But no, like there's a lot of, um, there's a lot more to it than that. Um, but thankfully, you know, um, the incubators that exist in New York are really, really supportive and they're really helpful and they want to make sure that if you start with them, you know what you're doing and, and um, they offer a lot of free um, support services and we took advantage of that and, and that really helps uh, guide us and, and make the transition to doing this um, more seriously smoother. Yeah. You were both very career focused, um, 
before you had children and b- before you started the company too. And Doha, you were in journalism and Frida, you were in engineering, right? And then you both took time to raise children. How have your lives changed since starting the company together? You're stumped. Yeah, I mean, it. it's great. Like, I feel proud that I'm able to be home with my kids and still do something that I'm passionate about and something that I love. Um, before, when I was at Accenture, I was coming home at, like, 8.30 and not really interacting much with the kids other than to put them to bed. Um, so now I get to be there for drop-offs and pickups and homework and everything. And then, you know, while they're in school, I can do what I need to do. We go to the kitchen, we blend. Sometimes we blend on the weekend. Our markets are on the weekend. Um, but it's, it's a very rewarding feeling to be able to do everything. Uh, we're not moving as fast as we would like and growing as fast as we would like because we're limited. Like I have four kids, she has the three. Um, and I think we're both agreed that our children and our families are our top priority. Um, but I wouldn't say it's changed much other than I just have more to do now um, and more to juggle. But we're managing and we're handling it. It sounds like you've kind of figured out the best of both worlds. Yeah, yeah. And I hope it always stays that way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, initially we kind of had this um, notion that, you know, opportunities come once and you have to, like, grab them or they're not going to come back. And we've learned to say no to things and we've learned to be, like, choosier about what we do and and, um, what we take on and and learning to manage um, everything as best as we can and not, you know, overextending ourselves, except for holiday time, because oh that's... <laughs> Let that's us tell you about holiday season. <laughs> there is no avoiding um, overstraining yourself during the holiday season. But aside from that, um, you know, we we try very hard to give, you know, our families their right and our, our work its right. But, you know, my youngest is going to enter preschool next year. So we hope that um, once that happens, um, you know, the next chapter begins. Yeah. Doa, you touched on this just a little bit, but you started the company in 2015. And obviously things in America changed significantly after the 2016 election. Did anything change for you? I mean, either both professionally or with you know, the way it coincided in launching your company, because you're obviously presenting yourself as Muslim American women of Egyptian descent. Has it had any impact on the way you talk about yourselves or just interact with people in general? I mean, we didn't, I personally didn't um, meet any negative uh, reactions like in in in-person markets. I got negative reactions when I was like at the supermarket in my regular everyday life, uh, but not in the market setting. Um, we did after Trump got elected, get like a couple of emails of support, which was really, um, touching where people were just apologizing and letting us know that, you know, this isn't representative of what they think about us and that they have our back if anything were to happen, um, which, you know, was really heartfelt and and touching for us. But I think that probably would get more negative, um, you know, feedback because of the niqab, the face veil that she wears. Yeah, so um, I definitely, um, I would say after the election, I saw 
people were more vocal if they did have something negative to say. I don't really remember an instance before the election where, I mean, I would get looks, but nobody really came up to me to express what they were thinking. Um, whereas after the election, um, it did happen on a few instances. And um, I think my, my approach to it now is, you know, I, I don't take it, you know, like I don't, I think like, after 9-11, we all kind of felt this collective shame about like being Muslim and having to apologize for things and trying to prove to people we're like you and we're one of you and we're the same. And I don't, you know, feel that way anymore. You know, I don't feel I have to be this model minority and be nice and polite to you when you're being nasty to me. And, you know, I um, feel I have every right to tell you you're being a bigot and that, you know... Um, I'm not going to give you the space to, you know, speak to me in the way you're speaking. Um, so thankfully, though, it's it's happened, you know, just a handful of times. But, um, you know, I, I've I've definitely seen when people are present, though, customers, um, they will jump in and, you know, also tell the offending person that, you know, it's uncalled for and unnecessary. And um, I was happy to see that. Yeah. And I like kind of what you mentioned. I mean, purchasing Spice Tree Organics is like a great way. It's like a little bit of resistance, you know. It's it's a great way to kind of say, you know, I don't I don't buy into this rhetoric, and in fact, I'm I'm literally buying something that proves that. And I've seen that with other guests who've you know come on this show before who have companies, and it's just like it's a small thing you can do is is supporting people in your community. Yeah, and we did feel like a lot of pressure because. It's like we're, we're kind of the face, right? And they're interacting with us, and I might be one of the only Muslim people you've ever interacted with. Um, but I guess our goal was just to be like, dude, I'm human like you are. I have four kids sitting at home that are hungry, don't like their broccoli, don't like this, and I have to figure out ways to feed them, just like you have to figure out ways to feed your kids, and so let's bond over food. Let's, right, everybody you know, else. Yeah, let's talk about tandoori masala and how my kid wolfed it down and maybe your kid will too. Like it's, it's a humanizing point and a bonding point to like talk about food. So it's given us like a lot of opportunities for positive interaction. Yeah. Um, I guess on that note, what are a few of your spices you want to mention or, or recipes that are, are perfect for your spice blends or what are things you even like to cook at home? Um, I, um, I want to shout out our Malaysian curry blend. <laughs> shout it out. It is our favorite. You know, it's the unanimous, um, you know, favorite amongst our lineup. I even had a friend over today who she kind of like grimaced when I told her I'd made like Malaysian curry for her because she'd had such a bad experience at a Malaysian restaurant. And she was like, oh, my God, no, this is like this is otherworldly. Um, and, you know, I, I think uh, our whole goal is kind of um, I think when you're a minority doing food, people kind of expect you to just focus on where you're from. And, you know, um, you're not really the one uh, showcasing other cuisines and other um, cultures to the world. And um, I feel like there needs to be more of, of minorities doing that. Um, so we feel really strongly about um, showcasing, like, you know, global food and not just Middle Eastern. Um, and so I would say um, 
you know, the Malaysian curry and, 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 you know, we just have a lot of stuff that is versatile. So winter cooking, like, you know, you know, you want to throw some like tandoori masala up in a pot with like, you know, some chickpeas and make yourself like a hearty stew. Yeah, like it'll those be good. Yeah. Spices. yeah. Anything else you want to add food-wise? Well, our halal cart chicken is our number one <laughs> bestseller. So I'd have to shout that out to do it justice. Anytime we're doing a market and I see customers cracking up or pointing like at the bins, I know exactly what blend they're like pointing at. Um, but yeah, I mean, all our blends are great. And I guess the whole point is no matter which one you get, just you know that you're getting something that was made with heart and that was made with love. Um, that was well-tested, well-tasted, well-researched. Uh, we do everything in small batch. Um, like we grind and blend to our markets and our orders. So it hasn't been sitting on a you know warehouse store shelf or wherever for a year. You're literally getting it two weeks after grinding. Um, so you'll taste and smell the difference. And then we really genuinely want to get people back in the kitchen. I'm not just selling you a spice that's going to sit in your cupboard unopened. I'm giving you a recipe card. Um, I'm giving you food samples at the event to get you excited and hyped to take it home and use it. We have additional recipes on the website to like support you and um, playing around in the kitchen and, and rediscovering like different cuisines. Mm. Tell us where we can get it. www.spicetreeorganics.com And this will, weekend we'll be doing um, an Etsy market at the Brooklyn Historical Society um, Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 6. You guys on Instagram? Are you on Facebook? Are you yes, on definitely. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook, and our handle is Spice Tree Organics. Excellent. Um, well, thank you, Frida and Doa. This was actually such—not actually, absolutely—such a pleasure to meet you both and hear about your company. And I'm so inspired. Um, also, want to mention we're doing some fundraising here at the network, so you could become a member. Um, which is a great way to support us. You can just go to heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate, and you can buy a membership for a friend because being a member is super cool, and so that's a great holiday gift to any of your friends who like online food radio. Thank you for listening to Food Without Borders. I'm Sari Kamen, and we'll see you next week, Wednesday at 6 p.m. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.